I was in my office in the college and one of my students had thrown a cup of coffee out of a window and it had landed on someone's car. And the owner was a little bit upset, so he came in and threatened me with an AK-47 and the students. So it was at that point I knew that politically, as a, as a white entrepreneur in South Africa, the writing was on the wall, and I made the moves to actually find a listed shell, which we did. We reversed our business into that shell and then did nine acquisitions for them over the next 18 months. So it was a fun time. I then had served my time. I left, went into venture capital, and then came to Australia. Welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast with business strategist, speaker, and author, Gavin Preston. Tap into this meeting of minds between everyday business people on their journey to master business growth. Join them as they share strategies, insights, and shortcuts to help you survive and thrive in business and life as you scale your business and achieve a bigger impact. Hey, Gavin here, and welcome back to the Business Mastermind Podcast. Today, I'm reaching to the Southern Hemisphere to speak uh, in Western Australia, in Perth, to Rail Bricker. Rail is a collector of experiences and observations. Um, 30 years of experience as an entrepreneur. He delivers a series of workshops on building businesses and thinking outside the norm. His experiences range from working 6,000 feet underground uh, to building an educational business with six campuses and 4,000 students. Several years in venture capital and his financial services group has got more than $2.8 billion in settled residential loans. He's been involved in listed companies on two stock exchanges and sees himself as a serial entrepreneur and spent many years in community and not-for-profit leadership positions and sees that as one aspect of paying it forward. Rail, welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. Thank you, Gavin, and happy to be here. Uh, what I'd love us to have a conversation uh, you know, about today is about culture. But before we get into culture and this fascinating research you've been done about the future of work and the importance of culture, can you share a little bit of your background through you know, the venture capital stuff, through the growth of those businesses and actually how it all came from 6,000 feet underground? Well, thank you, Gavin. I mean, on the back of the book, Dive In, that I sent you a copy of, it says there, my philosophy in life is that business is not complicated. Business is simple. Sometimes you just have to dive in and adjust your course. And so that was always my philosophy. So how did I get underground? I did an engineering degree. I only way I could afford to go to university was it, uh, my parents couldn't afford it. I got a scholarship from Anglo-American, which was a major South African mining house. And in return, I had to work for them for two years. So but at the age of 20, I went off to a mine with 55,000 staff and a loud mouth, which is always a problem for me. <laughs> and I ended up as a junior engineer on the mine, worked in a uranium plant, then a gold processing plant. And after three months, we were sent to what was called Nine Shaft. And we worked at 63 level, 6,300 feet down, wow. where the rock temperature is about 35 degrees Celsius. Really? Wow. So. It's, it's pretty hot down there. You don't drink too much the night before because it comes out in your overall <laughs> during your shift. Wow. But, but what happened there, I understood the corporation and I was frustrated by the corporation because I saw myself as this engineer, but I wanted to understand my role in the greater organization. 
And none of the engineers I worked with could actually do that. They didn't have that, that ambition. All they wanted to do was do their job, go home and have six beers. Whereas I wanted to know how did my role on 63 level as an engineer and, and then eventually as an engineer on the shaft, but how did that impact on the gold we're getting out the ground and on the great organization? And so I kind of knew already at that stage that for me, the entrepreneurial journey was the right one. Um, I did my MBA, I left the mines and did an MBA, which I always say to young people is not a pass to being an entrepreneur. No, no. Uh, an MBA teaches you a lot of things about a lot of aspects of the business, doesn't make you a specialist in any of them, and most certainly doesn't make you an entrepreneur. And certainly, in my opinion, seems to be geared more towards, um, you know, those in C-suite uh, positions in corporates as opposed to, you know, leading your own business and being an entrepreneur yourself. Oh, absolutely. It, but it did teach me about HR. It was the first time as an engineer, someone who worked on the mines, I got to understand human resources. I got to understand negotiation skills. got to understand economics that I'd never really studied in my engineering degree. So it taught me a lot of little things. But, but moving on from that, I finished the MBA. A, a friend was finished his MBA. We decided we were going to teach the world how to run their businesses, which is interesting as 25-year-old MBA graduates who had never run a business, we were going to yeah. teach the world how to Love run it. theirs. Love it. Um, we started and actually won a contract bizarrely from the Electricity Supply Commission. Didn't last very long. Um, and then we were kind of dumped on that contract and said, what the hell are we going to do now? Well, what do people do who've got a lot of knowledge? We started teaching. And so we started a college teaching marketing. And it was a four-year diploma. And we were in the right place at the right time. To put that into a context, that was 1990 in South Africa. Nelson Mandela was released the 11th of February, 1990. There was a, an emergent um, lower class, if you want to call them then, but, but you know, wanting to get ahead and wanting education, but had a terrible schooling. So there was a demand for diploma style courses that could take people into management roles. And so we were in the right place at the right time, not by design. And that's the biggest thing I tell people is we had a business in our heads of being management consultants. We never saw ourselves starting a college, but we did. And so we had 20 students by the end of 1990 and we were in the right place, right time. We had no money. So we had to market in the weirdest, wonderful ways. And I speak a lot about that in the book of, of how we marketed on a budget. And we grew very rapidly. Two years later, we started our second campus. Three years later, we started two more campuses and we just were growing and we were offering the right product at the right time. Got to 6,000 students. I was threatened with an AK-47. Oh, wow. Um, and that's a whole different story. Um, and that prompted you to leave South Africa? Oh, I left a few years later, but I was in my office in the college and one of my students had thrown a cup of coffee out of a window and it had landed on someone's car. And the owner was a little bit upset. So he came in and threatened me with an AK-47 and the students. So it was at that point I knew that politically, as a, as a white entrepreneur in South Africa, the writing was on the wall. And I made the moves to actually find a listed shell, which we did. We reversed our business into that shell and then did nine acquisitions for them over the next 18 months. So it was a fun time. I then had served my time. I left, went into venture capital and then came to Australia. Right. right. Um, 21 years ago. Being in Australia, again, I got a job for two years because an entrepreneur here told me, get a job, learn the way of Australia because you can't come in. With South African thinking. So I did that. I, I met 
met some guys, joined a venture fund, listed that on the stock exchange here in Australia. And they wanted me to move to Sydney. And I said, no, I love living in Perth. It's a great place. I'll stay here. I did that. I went out on my own thinking it was easy to just raise money for companies. They asked me to raise them debt. And I went, I don't know how to do that, but I'll find out. So I did. And I found out I had to be something called a finance broker or a mortgage broker. So I qualified as a mortgage broker. And then they said, great, can you do our home loan for us at the same time? So I did the home loans. I still own that business 20 years later. It's our 20th anniversary this year. And in fact, on my book, it says 2.8 million. We've now gone to 3.1 billion in mortgages that we've done through that business. Amazing. So that's the business story. Seven years ago, I had two cardiac stents because I was training for a marathon and I started getting neck pain. They found out I had two blocked arteries. And that made me pursue what I really was passionate about, which is being on stage. And so I still own the financial services groups, but I became a professional speaker as well seven years ago. And I love that as a passion. That's what I do. That's what really keeps me, wakes me up in the morning with, because I want to turn the lights on in people's eyes. I want to see them get it and go, yep, I can do this. I can be successful in business. It's such a privilege, isn't it, to see that moment of where you've inspired, where you've educated, where you've lit or rekindled a fire, you know, in the in the belly of determination. And it's such a privilege to be in that position. It's great fun. And it's great to give back. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all very well. I've done well in my businesses. I have a lot of fun. I've had the opportunity to spend time with my kids and watch them grow up and, you know, do things with them and travel the world with my kids. Um, but it's been amazing to be able to give back. And I get more pleasure when I stand up on stage or run a classroom and I walk out of there and people are going, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. Not because I love the, the ego says, oh, that was great. They loved it. But because I made an impact, because yeah. I made some positive change. For sure. For sure. So you, um, you wrote the book, uh, Dive In, and the business you know, doesn't have to be complicated, could it be more simple? So before we go into the stuff around culture, you know, what will be two or three key messages from the book Dive In that you want to share with our listeners? Well, the, the first is, is, is give up control to gain control, it was actually the working title of the book for many years. And it was the key to probably growing all my businesses. In that the education business, my partner and I did everything. We started out, we stood at the photocopy, we stood at the computer, stood at the computer, typed notes, went to the photocopier, photocopied them, put them in files, carried them out, gave them to the students. You know, we did everything because we didn't have staff. As soon as we started outsourcing those tasks, it freed us up to actually grow the business. In the mortgage business, I was doing everything. I was working from home. I got my first offices. I got my first staff. And I'm a very trusting person and I found the right person and I trusted him. And I said, this, I'm going to teach you the process and then I'm going to leave you to your own devices. You're either going to mess up or you're going to do well. And 14 and a half years later, he's still with the business. He's a shareholder in the business now. So Fantastic. You know, it's, it's been a long process. So that giving up control by empowering people in your team is probably the key point, you know, Give them, give them the ability to mess up and then they'll take the responsibility. So what's your view in terms of um, setting their objectives, the amount of one-to-ones you'd have with them, the whole accountability piece? Because 
you know, as for as many stories of uh, empowerment have turned out probably even more where it's not been a success. So what has you found work to get the best out of those individuals that you have given up control to? So two things, a couple of things. One is, I, so one of the other key principles uh, that I live by is I'll never ask staff to do anything that I wouldn't do. Sure. Uh, and so, and, and so and that sounds simple, but it, but it actually is what built the relationship with the team because I would firstly open door policy and all the other things, but even the staff, as I was empowering them, I, I would sit every morning and I still do it today when I'm, when I'm in the mortgage business. I mean, I, I spend only about 50% of my time there, but I sit with a team every day, often with my feet up on a table because I'm with that relaxed. And I go through with them, what files are you working on? You know, tell me the stories. We'll tell a few jokes. Friday, Fridays, we'll all have lunch together. But they're in and out of my office and I'm in and out of the, I'm in and out with them into the open plan area where they work all the time and every day because the studio where I work from in the training and education business is in the same offices. Great. So, so empowered them. Yes, I've had staff that have messed up. I have had staff in the past that have, have abused the privilege, have, you know, in, in Australia, there's a good term, chakasiki. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chakasiki yeah. means I really don't. I really don't feel like going to work on Monday morning. I'll just chakasiki. Okay. And I've had staff like that. And and so at some point you have to move them on. But I think by by opening up yourself, a lot of bosses don't give of themselves. They think they have to sit in the in the ivory tower, and and they don't give of themselves the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, there are photos on our wall of of practical jokes that the team have played on me and I and, and my other team members have played on each other. You know, we had our, our one Christmas function and they gave me a, a um, apron because they thought I was uh, uh, I'd speaking, speaking about making food. And so I walked around the whole Christmas party with an apron on and there's photographs up in the office because that's about being real. It's about, Love it. it's about caring and understanding. It's about being real. And I think a lot of- Is that I've, what I've you mean by giving of yourself? Uh, is that what you mean? Yes, like, being yeah, real. Yeah. Being yeah. real. I mean, I've seen businesses fail where they've tried to buy in the expertise they need. And, and yes, in a major corporation, you have to. You don't expect the chief financial officer to know what the engineers are doing necessarily. But as small businesses or media businesses grow, as the founder, as the entrepreneur, as the major shareholder, you actually have to have your finger on the pulse of everything not necessarily doing it because that would just make it impossible but it has to be that but you have to be real you know consulting client in south africa i said to them guys you know you've got a business that you sell high-end product but not in in a low volume so high-end watches and jewelry and i said so when did you last ask your staff in the warehouse about a better way of running your distribution. And they said, oh, we've never have. We've got supervisors to do that. And I said, why don't you take your lunch one day? The first time you do it, the staff will be cynical and want to know what you're doing there. But the second or third time you do it, once a month, go and take your sandwich, go and sit in their lunchroom and explain to them that you want their input on how to make the process better. And the first time they won't talk to you. But by the third time, they'll be sharing with you how to improve your systems. Yeah. But you'll now be real. Don't sure. wear your suit and tie. Take off your jacket. 
go in there in open neck shirt. Better still go in there in a fluoro vest, which is what they wear in the, yeah, in, the yeah. in the thing, and talk to them. Just talk. Go and ask them about their families, how long they commute to work. Build the trust. And this is a company of 200 and, well, 120 people was merging with another one, which is why I was working with them, but 120 people. And, and that philosophy just hadn't sunk in at 120 people. Yeah, yeah. So first, the first key lesson from the book dive in, um, give up control to gain control. Another key lesson. Simplify your systems. Don't overcomplicate. A lot of people who come out of the corporate environment, particularly large corporate, are used to very, very complicated systems and structures. Yeah. And I always say, if you can't explain the way your business works on one A4 piece of paper, it's too complicated. Yeah. You know, yes, each block on that piece of paper may represent um, a whole process on its own. But when you've got a new employee walk through the door and you want to explain your process, keep it to one page. Keep it to one A4 page that at the end of an hour, that person knows how the business operates. Exactly what I struggled with when I worked on the mine. I didn't know how all the pieces fit together. And there was no simpler part corporate structure. This is a simplified, not a corporate structure, it's a process structure. But it's it just keep the business simple. Don't overcomplicate things for the sake of overcomplicating them. And then when you're making it that block, and this is what I do with clients, I will say to them, right, why do you do it like that? So I'll be the, the, the real pain in the, in the rear end, asking them why they do that process like that. And a lot of the time, it's because we've always done it like that. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to say, well, can you do it a better way? So, so they keep it simple in a lot of ways, but keep your structure simple, keep your structure clean, it works. And the th a third key message? Communication. Um, communication is king and the truth, the truth will, out, will outlast everything. So, you know, never fall into the trap of trying to, to lie, I mean, or to bend the truth. <laughs> um, you know, to, to, to manufacture the stories because those will come back to bite you. I've always said to my staff in financial services, I said, you know, if, if the clients, if the bank are messing you around and the bank are taking extra three days, be honest with the client and say, this is why it's taking so long. And if you, and, and recently one of my team members, it, it's been crazy in the mortgage industry in 2021 in Australia, and one of my team members came to me and said he really messed up. A client sent him paperwork in January and he took him three weeks to look at it. And I said, so email the client and explain exactly what happened. You dropped the ball. Yeah. And the client said, oh, it wasn't really urgent. Don't worry about it. We're happy that you've admitted that you made the mistake. And so whereas he could have said, oh, but, but, you know, the bank are doing this and the bank, whatever. You could have blamed someone else. Just the truth is king. You know, the communication is king. The biggest customer complaints I've ever got in all my businesses is for lack of communication. Sure. So sure. even if you have to send them a message to say, we don't have an answer, we'll get one on Wednesday, communicate. And that's, that's where a lot of companies fall down is on that communication. Uh, and that offers a, a great segue, segue to our conversation around uh, culture, because uh, I've seen time and time again, that very point in, in practice that there is poor communication both up the chain and down the trip chain poor communication with a supply chain and with customers um so where did your so you, uh, just to, to preface this you've you've now 
interviewed 89 countries in so 89 companies in 29 countries um, about culture the drivers of culture and the future of work where did that project what was the genesis of that project for you well I wrote two chapters on culture in my book because it was my thinking about culture and then a mentor of mine a professional speaker based out of Singapore him and I were at a conference in Adelaide in sorry, in Adelaide in Auckland three years ago okay and we were sitting down and talking and this is before my book was published and he does a thing about what's your inner voice what is your real passion and we spoke for about three hours and he made notes and he turned around he's turned his laptop around to me and he said your passion is culture just by talking to me about business and life and the universe and i said yes it is in fact and i took out my laptop and i showed him there were two chapters on culture in my book so what he said is for me to make a real impact on clients I need to take my experience outside of South Africa and Australia. I need to go and find out the good and the bad stories. And so I started on LinkedIn. I started reaching out to people um, around the world in, 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 in say over 25 countries now. And I've said to them, um, I want to interview you about what makes your culture rich and robust and or toxic. And so Interestingly, of all the interviews, about 25% were people who are disgruntled and wanted to talk about the toxic culture they were working in as well. So that was a fascinating insight. I never thought I'd get that many people volunteering to talk about the toxicity in their organization. So that's how that project came about. It is, it is going to be my next book. Um, most likely the working title at this moment is if culture really ate strategy for breakfast, what's for dinner? Love that. Love that. And that's and a, so, that's a, a, a famous, uh, is, it, is it a McKinsey quote? No, it's, uh, oh. and I've gone blank for a second. Do we have to edit that up? Um, <laughs> yeah, what, what are the big um, uh, corporate leaders in the US, isn't it? I agree yeah, yeah. if culture really, adds, if culture, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so yeah. I've just looked at it and I've said, yes, it may, but what's for dinner? What's next? What's the future yeah. of culture? What's the future of work? What, and, and, and the pandemic of 2020 and 2021 has changed that, that, that landscape dramatically. I'm now going back to the people I interviewed and saying, what are you doing now? Because you know, a, lot of, a lot of what their plans were in 2018 and 19 have changed dramatically. So, so obviously, for, for, whilst we discussed in, in, in Western Perth, you, you've had much less sort of COVID-related restrictions than in many places in the uh, in the world. Um, obviously, we're seeing a lot of people working remotely by choice or by requirement. We're seeing a lot less use of offices. Uh, we're seeing organisations like Dropbox and Twitter saying you don't need to return to an office. Or I think Dropbox is doing a hybrid route where you might go into or days a week for team meetings, but the rest of the time you're working remotely. So this is really topical to think about how the part that culture has to play with a changing workforce that could be even more geographically dispersed. So, I mean, so the two drivers that came out of my research are that if companies have, that companies with rich and robust cultures had a purpose and a set of values. Yeah. And a purpose was something greater than themselves that binds the team to a greater mission. And the values were the relationship of the team to all the stakeholders in, in, in a broad sense. And so those are going to become more critical. But I mean, what, we, what we're anticipating 
is that as we sort of move post pandemic, we won't really have the working from home environment, we'll have working near home environments. So there, there's a lot of talk around the development of serviced office suites in suburban areas, mm -hmm. where, you know, in a large corporation, thousands of employees, you know, they'll be within a five kilometer radius, there'll be 20 employees, they will have a, a hot desking type arrangement where they can at least be close enough, you know, keeping social distancing and all those things, but to warm bodies, to other people that they can talk to, that they can not feel the isolation, because that's probably the biggest challenge is the isolation For sure. of working from home. So, so we're going to see trends like working near home, you know, central hubs where corporates will lose half their, their corporate office space. It'll become much more hot desking oriented, meeting room oriented, you know, come in for team meetings and then leave. Um, but they will find space to work near home where at least they can interact with other human beings besides, you know, the cat and the dog that, that sleep under their feet and under the home office. But what we're also starting to see in Australia is a move out of, out of location. So people were buying properties close to the CBD because of communication, because, yeah. sorry, because of, um, of transport, of wanting yeah, to get into yeah. the city and not wanting to commute for an hour, hour and a half each way. We're starting to see everywhere across Australia now people buying properties that are on train lines or on, on but you know, it could be an hour, hour and a half out of the city, but they're only coming into the city once a week. Yep. Then they're designing properties on bigger properties, so better lifestyle decisions, I think, because you've got more green space. But they're building a house that has a 50 square meter office, not a 10 square meter office, because it is a home office now. Yeah. You know, it might be, you know, a couple, husband and wife or whatever it is, both working from home yeah. and they need to be accommodated, be able to have conversations. So they're going to build bigger houses, but with different spaces, with bigger offices. So there's lots of trends happening like that. Um, you know, corporate vacancy in some places in Australia is up to 30% for commercial space already. Um, what do you think, what would you think will happen to all of that corporate, these sort of office real estate then? Well, I think some of it will actually get converted to residential. Yeah. But Australia is very under, and I'm talking about Australian model, it's very undersupplied of residential accommodation in the central business district. So there are still people who want to be near all the restaurants and the theaters and everything else, and particularly young marrieds or young singles sure. um, would want to live there. And so th there's a tremendous undersupply of that. Okay. So already in, in, in Sydney, there have been some buildings converted or the conversions are in process to convert them to residential. I mean, the infrastructure is there. You know, there's a lot more that has to go in. But the, that's a, one of the ideas. And, and there are always emerging businesses. So it, it's, I think the big floor spaces are being cut into smaller floor spaces. I think it will slow down commercial construction. But I think commercial construction will, will switch to other things. It'll switch outside of CBDs. You know, big empty office buildings now are great for data centers if they've got the right. That's the next future is, is sure. big data storage. Um, you don't really want to do it in Perth, Western Australia, where it's, you know, you know, 20 plus degrees every day because your cooling costs are too high. Yeah. You might want to do it like off the coast of Finland, like some, I think Amazon have put um, some oh, servers yeah, yeah. on, so on the, 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 the coast, of, coast of Finland. Yeah, yeah. So, 
No, there's, it's going to be repurposing, I, I think, is the way to go. The, but even then, you mentioned, you know, companies who are going to bring people in for team meetings. So they might have bigger spaces where they can accommodate bigger teams. And so it's just, you know, open space where they can all meet together, you know, some form of desking, those who want to come in and work there during the day. But it's still a place where they can accommodate lots of people. So lots of things happening like that. Um so, so much of culture is about the kind of the energy, the vibe you get from people when they're in the same physical space. Now, when you're going to see this kind of more distributed model, how, you know, what's your view around how you keep that culture so, alive and vibrant? So leadership is going to have to change too. I mean, I think the role of the leader is going to have to be one. And I only have 20 staff at the moment, you know, between the businesses. And so when we were in lockdown, I made a, 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 a WhatsApp message every day, a video conference with most of the team every day, just to say, are you okay? Um, how are you doing? Let me see you on video. Let me hear your voice. Let me hear if you're sounding okay. So, so the, the leadership role is going to be much more hands-on um, in terms of communicating with staff in ways, in, in ways like that. Some organizations in the U.S. that I interviewed, you know, two years ago, who already had remote staff, they right. were already introducing things like for Christmas, you know, the uh, the the Christmas jersey, the Christmas jumper, yeah, yeah, you know, that ugly one that your grandmother knitted for you. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Okay, and so they would have those competitions four times a year across the organization, not just at Christmas. Fantastic. Um, they were. They, you know, they still did the T-shirts and they still found, interestingly, the one company had 500 software engineers and 300 of them were working remotely. And when they got them onto video calls, the majority of them were actually wearing the company T-shirts sitting in their lounge room at home. Amazing. You know, and so, and so the whole idea of, you know, wearing the company T-shirt, you know, a, a joke I often make is that most companies put their logo on the left, maybe because it's near the employee's heart. I don't know. But, but you know, they're wearing the company T-shirt. They're feeling the pride of wearing the company T-shirt. One of the questions I asked was, do, if you went down to the local shopping center on a Saturday morning, would you see team members wearing your company shirt? And a lot of them said, yes, they would. Amazing. Maybe because they were doing the garden or whatever. I'm not joking. Yeah. But, okay. But, you know, that that company pride. So what else do you have to do? I mean, communication is going to be even bigger. I mean, we've got Slack now. We've got WhatsApp. We've got Microsoft Teams. But all these mechanisms people are using to communicate, um, you know, bandwidth is increasing, video. But there are, but there are converse challenges. So, uh, and I, I, there was an, a company I, I interviewed in America, an insurance company. And they actually were one of the few that has their call centers onshore in the US, not offshore. So when the pandemic hit and they sent their staff home, they had 500 people in their call center. That was claims and sales and whatever, quite a big call center. The biggest challenge they had was the, the management messed up. I spoke to a, a you know, third tier employee HR manager, but you know, I thought that the, the management had messed up. Why? Because management turned around to the team and said, and they and she and they she said to me, most of the call center staff were from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. 
um, and a lot of them lived semi-rural, so outside of the city that they lived in. They'd commute into the city. And so she said the company messed up because they turned around to these people and said, well, the same way that you have to organize transport to get to work, you have to make sure you have enough internet bandwidth at home uh, to be able to cope with a call center. Mm -hmm. So that was what they looked at, but they didn't go deeper into the socioeconomics where everybody was stuck at home. Mm -hmm. So family, you know, husband, wife, kids, you know, grandparents potentially for multi-generational housing. And where does a person who's on a call center who has to be talking to people in a clear environment, you know, where do they sit in a household? Because lower socioeconomics may not have a separate lounge, a separate dining room. It's, it's all one big room, one great room, whatever. So, so then, you know, although they're sitting in their bedroom, yeah. working there, which is quite depressing most of them, you know, yeah, most yeah. probably. And so, and so the, the, there's that side of it as well, that, 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 you know, you management who are higher socioeconomic area didn't take into account the socioeconomic circumstances of their team. In May, yes, they were snap decisions. They were decisions made at the heart of the pandemic. This is what we've got to do. For sure. But I think that's the kind of stuff that's going to drive cultures. You know, whether you say to people, okay, we'll, we'll improve your internet speed at home because we want you to do this. We'll get you noise cancelling headphones and a good microphone. You know, I think companies will start doing that sort of tech. I was, uh, I, I don't, you know, that's going to be part of the culture. When people acknowledge people's personal circumstances and that's about that communication. You don't and, talk I, know, to them. I know a friend of mine uh, works for one of the uh, well international but a major UK high street bank and we've worked from home now for a, for a year but one of the first things that she was issued with was um, you know a second screen a monitor for her to go with a laptop uh, and then a, a headset with a noise cancelling headphones you know so at least she was yeah. in, she was given some of the right equipment to help her do a job or you know full time offer uh, or, and, and a budget for an office chair as well comfortable yeah. chair so, I mean, so even, even office suppliers. So, again, talking to one of the office supply companies where they used to get an order for 100 desks and 100 chairs delivered to a corporate office, they're still getting an order for 100 desks and 100 chairs delivered to 100 different locations. Wow, yeah. And so, so you know, a lot of companies in Australia went that way where they were saying to staff, if you don't have a decent desk and chair, we'll get them for you. We'll deliver them to your house. Um. So, so there's lots of things that are changing. I mean, you know, the, the water cooler, how do you create a water cooler? How do you create the, the coffee machine, the kitchen at the office? Those impromptu conversations that not only really build rapport and relationship, but actually a lot of the real work and the real conversations of a business or an organization are done at the coffee machine or the water cooler. Yeah, absolutely. And so part of our WhatsApp group, we used WhatsApp in the office and, and there are a whole series of debates about WhatsApp and security, but that's not an issue. Um, I would encourage people and I would do it myself, put out a joke or a meme or a cartoon onto the group to a make lower the tone, not lower the tone, but lower the, the, the seriousness of the conversation so that there was the same banter that we were getting in the office. And so then people started posting their own memes or their own funny pictures or of themselves. I mean, you know, one of the staff said to me, she wore a mask while working at home. And I said, why? And she said, so she didn't eat. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. You know, and, so, and so, so I think those are going to be some of the challenges. 
a number of organizations I've spoken to recently are planning post-pandemic when people are working from home, having four or five, instead of spending all the money on office space, spending four or five um, corporate retreats during um, the year. So they would take big teams away, take a big hotel, go for three or four days of team building, collaboration, working together as a way of building the teams. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the, a great analogy is if you were on a rowing boat going down a river at night in a thunderstorm, so you can kind of visualize that idea and it's a dark night, no lights on, no, no stars, no moon. When the, the lightning flashes, you've got an absolutely crystal clear vision of where you're going and then it's gone and you're living on that memory of which way you should be navigating until the next lightning flash. And so that's what organizations are going to have to do is create those Hollywood moments, those lightning flashes for their team so that that's what sustains them from, um, from event to event and during that period when they're a little bit lost at home, but hopefully they've gone and built up friendships, different levels of friendship, you know, the, the levels of friendship you build up in a pub, having a few beers with people that you may not socialize with normally. Um, those are the lasting things. Those are the jokes. Those are the lasting things that will keep those cultures going. Fantastic. Uh, I love this. I love this conversation for uh, anybody that really wants to delve into your work more about culture. And I know the book's still in writing, but um, if you want to find out more about your insights or maybe you want to tap into your expertise and speaking uh, on this topic, how do they find out more, Rail? So rail at railbricker.com is the easiest. I am on most, or in fact, most social media. Um, I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Um, I actually am moderating a lot of stuff on Clubhouse as well, but primarily LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and rail at railbricker.com. And on the uh, railbricker.com website, there is a, a link that I will send you to put in the show notes that gives people a free book, a free download of Dive In. Um, it's it's www.railbricker.com slash free book. And they'll be able to download a free copy for your listeners of your podcast. Fantastic. Very, thank you very much, Rail. And just before we go, just to pick up that point about Clubhouse, you strike me as being very purposeful with your time, uh, with you, the number of different things that you work on. Uh, how are you getting, you know, I see that uh, as Clubhouse is potentially a, a massive drain or suck on time. How are you, uh, how are you uh, getting the best, best out of it? What, what's your little strategy that so, works for you? I'm moderating two or three rooms with specific strategic people where we have a strategic objective to what we're doing. Great. Um, so one is a local group called Perth Entrepreneurs. So on a Thursday morning between nine and 10, we moderate a room and it's mostly Perth people. We actually have a coffee catch up. We had one on Saturday morning. So we, we're going sort of hybrid and social all at the same time. This morning, a colleague of mine from New York pinged me. I was driving to the gym our gym's actually open in Australia and said join her room they were talking about purpose and it was about culture and purpose so Perfect. there are strategic yeah. people who are pinging me into rooms I don't spend hours um, I might at a top end I probably spent 40 minutes today on clubhouse because I was in that room with this friend of mine you know commenting and moderating uh, 
I will probably, when I get into my car to drive home, put Clubhouse on and see if there's anything interesting yeah, and yeah. listen to it for my drive home. Sure. And would I make specific effort? There are people who spend 10 hours a day on Clubhouse and more. No. Um, I think it can be an incredible drain of time. I think there are people who are doing really well using it strategically. Yes. And I think it will settle down. I think it's, you know, yeah, the yeah, next sure. shiny object. I, it, it is pod, it's live podcasting effectively. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it will, sh it will dumb down. I think it will get to a point where the silly rooms disappear. Yeah. The let's, let, let's hang out and chill and listen to music. You know, that's great. But is there any point in it? Not really. <laughs> no. um, I think those will disappear. I think clubhouse, platform has some good educational value i've learned as a as a podcaster myself i've learned a tremendous amount about uh, podcasting and about what other people around the world are doing just by listening in on a few of the rooms on podcasting on on clubhouse fantastic so Real. i think yeah. the jury's out i i'd yeah. say it's 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 still new um if we had this conversation in two years time i might have a different view yeah for sure Rail, thank you so much for your time today and for all the knowledge you've imparted with us uh, for the Business Mastermind podcast. So railbreaker.com, uh, sorry, railbreaker.com. So it's R-A-E-L, rail, and then breaker, B-R-I-C-K-E-R.com. And then if you do forward slash free book, you'll be able to get a copy of Rail's uh, book, Dive In. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a great honor to be on your podcast and I love these conversations. And I love uh, sharing some of the ideas. You've been listening to the Business Mastermind podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that more people like you can get their business back on their own terms, enjoy more success and create more impact. <laughs>